Hi, it's Sarah from the podcast you're about to listen to. If you want to follow along with the slides I'm showing my guests at home, you can find links to all of those slide decks uh, in the Patreon posts. Uh, you don't need to be a patron during the public posts, but if you throw a couple dollars our way, you do get access to some monthly bonus episodes and to our Discord server where we sit and talk about, well, a lot of things, mostly kelp. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at FromTheCPod and through Gmail at it came from the Pod if you want to reach out with questions or encouragement. I welcome any feedback I can get. Thanks. And welcome to It Came From The Sea, a podcast about all things ocean science and ocean adjacent. I'm your host as ever, Sarah. My pronouns are she and they. And with me is Sam. Hello, Sam. Hello, Sam, she, her. Excellent. <laughs> um, Simple and effective. We like it. We like that about this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike all of my explanations. <laughs> <laughs> so we have been reading through Science on a Mission. And um, we're going to take another little interlude. Uh, Because sometimes it's really hard to read a book and then also do extra research on the book that you're reading. Yeah, it kind of sucks some of the fun out of reading a book. (laughs) It's I've been trying. So the first chapter, I like would read it and take notes as I read because I was like, oh, I don't want to forget that this is like a thing I want to look up. And then the second we did the second chapter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, we did. Um I was like, okay, no, I'm just going to like read through the whole chapter and then and then do notes like afterwards, like skim it, have it up on my computer as I like go through stuff. Um, I think that was the right way to do it. So I'm like trying to go back through the third, to go through the third chapter that way as well. We will see. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where like having it as an ebook is really convenient because I can just carry it with me yeah. and read little snippets of it. You can do that with real um, books too, you know. This would be such a heavy book. <laughs> yeah. And I would need like, I would need just an absurd amount of little like highlighter tabs yeah. <laughs> to be like, ooh, like look this up. Ooh, look at that up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that probably wouldn't be the better way to do this, to be honest. <laughs> um, but I saw a couple of little news articles that I thought we could we could uh, dive into. Uh, so I have two. One very cool and just like a neat little thing that we can learn about, and the other kind of distressing. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I guess we can balance out the the bad with the good, and <laughs> hopefully it works. So you want to start start with the distressing one? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Um, Sam, where, where are all the snow crabs? Oh, I have no idea, but I am very concerned. You So you have seen this as well? I saw that they disappeared, and that was pretty much it, and I just chalked it up to, like, magic. Um, <laughs> but I'm assuming it's that's, not. <laughs> it's, that's, so it's like, yeah, I guess this is almost like a story in um, three parts, kind of, because you have the, like, you have just the headlines. Yeah, they're just all gone. Where'd they go? Oh my god. And then you have the like the initial proposed like information and then you have a secret third thing which is like, ooh, what if there's a twist? Oh. Not much of a twist, but uh, something of a twist at least. So, 
yeah, all of the headlines that I saw at first, I honestly didn't click them because I was so just like annoyed. Yeah. That they were all just like, where are that? I think I have a like. Where did the crabs go? Yeah, where did the crabs go? Crabs disappear. Um, nobody knows where all the crabs went. Well, and they're dead. Like, That's where they are. <laughs> <laughs> they're dead or they never got born. Like that. Yeah. Right. It's not a. They didn't just disappear. I, it would be much funnier and much more interesting if they had just like all migrated somewhere. Yeah. Uh, maybe they did. To be fair. That is still a possibility, technically, that they just crawled someplace else, scuttled. Yeah. Someplace else. Wouldn't that be a treat? In my heart, that is what I'm hoping for. (laughs) Yeah. In three weeks, they're all going to, like, crawl up on the shores of Oahu because they actually just decided, fuck the coast of Alaska. We're going on vacation. (laughs) That would be fun. Yeah, and I wouldn't blame them for it either. I mean, I... Well, maybe Hawaii. You know, I have mixed best, mixed but. feelings about Hawaii personally. <laughs> it's not the state's fault. It is well, it's okay. It's the literal government's fault. Yeah. Um, in part, but it's not the fault of the physical island. Yeah, but crabs don't gotta uh, worry about government. Yeah, that's true. So for the crabs it's probably fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so right, we just have initially, the first like week or so, it was just all of these where did they go reports. Mm-hmm. Um and I didn't click on them because I was just mad. I don't like I don't like the head titles or the headlight the titles or the headlines. Like they just I didn't want to give in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I finally did see like more scientific reporting on them, it was just like climate change, right? right? Um, and we can talk about exactly how because it is uh, as much as all climate change related stories are distressing it is interesting and you do get to learn a little bit about how crabs uh like develop and grow Mm -hmm. do you remember when we talked about sea ice um i remember that we talked about it (laughs) perfect that's completely fine (laughs) okay one of the main things with sea ice which is ice that forms on the sea not um glacial ice that like drifts into the sea Uh is that when salt water forms ice when it gets cold enough that it does finally start to solidify in ice one of the things that happens is that for all those water molecules to bind they have to get rid of all that salt that's getting in the way mm-hmm. right so what you'll end up with is these massive you know ice ice floats uh and they'll just push all of the salt away they'll get it out of the like all out of the molecules out from in between all the water that wants to bind together and form a solid Mm -hmm. and so you end up with these uh pools underneath icebergs uh that are both colder uh, because they they're the water that it still has salt stuck in it so it's capable of getting much colder than freezing Mm -hmm. um so it is below freezing and it's very briny right it's just got a shitload of salt in it Mm -hmm. um and it is in these weird brine pools form beneath sea ice that these crabs actually like uh lay their eggs and the eggs hatch and form larvae mm-hmm. so like only in those specific little pools yeah for snow crabs for the alaskan snow crabs not all crabs mm-hmm. obviously hashtag not all crabs um <laughs> but for these specific crabs that is what happens mm-hmm. and then i have a little 
a little diagram I can show you. This this episode's not going to have like slides with it, but I will have links to all of the the articles or in this case a tweet thread um that we go through. Mm-hmm. So you can see we have this like the lifestyle of the Bering Sea snow crab. Um and sea ice freezes, sheds cold, briny seawater, and we have this dense cold cold layer of water near the bottom of the seafloor and this is where baby crabs grow up it's like a nursery for baby crabs it's real cute yeah but that's you know climate change global warming yeah pretty obvious pretty quickly to see how this would become a problem Mm -hmm. for these crabs because the next thing is that we have the shrinking extent of uh north pacific sea ice and you can see that between 2010 and 2019 we went from having like a big chunk of the kind of like the coastline really close to Alaska uh, being cold enough to form sea ice to having almost none of it being cold enough to form sea ice. Uh-huh. And so like we don't have a place for a crab nursery to form. Part of what kept um, those crab babies happy and safe was that most sea creatures couldn't enter those brine pools without like just dying, mm-hmm. right? Uh, even marine animals like exist in a very specific uh like salinity range which is why you have different species and different like basins within the ocean too is like if the salinity is off by like just a few parts per thousand um other like the fish don't like it they don't want to be in it yeah um and so when you don't have those brine pools forming you can still lay crab eggs and the crabs probably are laying their eggs at some rate um, but now instead of being like fully safe in their weird little like brine soup, uh, anybody can get to them now. Right. So, uh, cod, I believe Alaskan cod is like one of their biggest like predators huh. and they're probably just eating all the baby crab. Yeah. That's, that's our, our next, like we asked, where did the crabs go? Um, the first answer we got is, well, probably in like cod bellies. Yeah. Um, so like uh, if the sea ice patches have been shrinking since 2010, like, can we probably assume that the crab populations have also been shrinking? We just haven't really noticed or. So yes, like we have known that crab populations generally um, in the, you know, in the Pacific fisheries have been dwindling for a long time. Um, We're going to talk about another case that happened in the 1980s, where in 1983, there was a mass, uh, it's not a die off, but. There was a year where the North Pacific crab fisheries, I think king crab fisheries specifically, um, just like collapsed, Mm -hmm. right? Full scale community collapse. There were basically no crabs caught. Uh This is a huge deal. Huge deal um, for the people who make their living off of crab fishing, right? Right. Um, So at the time... Uh, there were reasons given for this. There were some atmospheric things that happened in the nineteen in in like early nineteen eighty one eighty two mm-hmm. that resulted in lower birth rates for king crab. That you know by the time you're trying to catch mature crabs three to four years later, um, you just had a shortage. You just didn't have that many. Right. And so similarly, um, the shrinking sea ice from twenty ten has been like kind of slowly. Or not slowly, but like gradually um, dwindling the numbers of Bering Sea snow crabs. Mm-hmm. But then the like complete lack of ice in 2018. And you can see by 2019, we do get a little bit more. 
that like lack of ice in 2018 resulted in actually last year we had um it was also reported that there was like very very low numbers of sea crabs and the year before that in 2020 alarmingly low numbers of sea crabs so it's still that one to two years after the sea ice shrinks after there is like a big change in their habitat during their larval stages that we see this big die off um so this didn't come out of nowhere which is the other thing that was like kind of implied by a lot of these head headlines mm-hmm. um no like this the die-offs have been or the die-offs the community collapse has been noticed for the last couple of years it's just particularly bad this year okay so now we have right we have where did they go oh my god and now we have like this kind of interesting in terms of like learning about life cycles of crabs and like community dynamics but not surprising answer here right Mm -hmm. uh climate change yeah sea ice melting very (laughs) scary i don't like to dwell on it even though i do yeah um but there's a twist oh a twist and the twist is a twist yes so the twist is uh there was this thread that is being um shared around is actually being reported on in so, like, one of the better articles I found was through Live Science mm-hmm. um, by Joanna Thompson. What made billions of snow crabs disappear from the Bering Sea? Already just a much better way to phrase right. the headline. A little less clickbaity. Um, a little less clickbaity. I don't like headlines that are questions. I just don't think that's a good way to write them. But Joanna almost certainly didn't pick this byline, mm-hmm. didn't pick this headline for herself, like, it's not really how that happens. Uh, some editor did. Uh-huh. Anyways, in her in her article, which is very thorough, she cites this thread by somebody named, um, their name is Spencer. Mm-hmm. And I feel like their last name is somewhere. Um, but on Twitter, they just have Spencer and then a little crab. <laughs> uh, and their their ta- their handle is unpop underscore science. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they are a science writer for Wired, Jacobin, The Intercept. Um, Jacobin is a leftist, like, like explicitly leftist, um, I think specifically socialist or communist focused, uh, magazine mm-hmm. um which also occasionally just will write stuff about how like veganism is the only thing that you can do to save the world so i you know we've talked about that in the seaspiracy episode mm-hmm. i don't always love what it puts out yeah. let's, let's just put it that way and i have seen other stuff that um spencer has put out that is in the same line of like this is why we need to be vegan and like mm. but mm-hmm. that's just for like full like i don't I'm not saying that this person should be, like, viewed uncritically. And when I say critically, I don't mean, like, be mean or be, like, skeptical of everything. I just mean I did, you know, I did go through and, like, I don't just trust a tweet thread when I see it. Right. (laughs) I did go through and, like, look through some of their other stuff. I did fact check some of the stuff in the thread. Generally, it's all fine. Mm -hmm. Um, It all all is fine. Like, if you want to go through the thread, I, you know the phrasing and the tone that is used is going to be something that you'll have to interpret on your own. But the facts that are laid out, uh, as far as I could, I could trace them are real where, okay, we have, we have this going on with the crabs. Mm -hmm. What is being reported currently? Um, 
by places that track crab populations, such as NOAA, uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, is that it is climate change. And that is kind of like, end of story, boom, it's not good. Everybody, we need to think about climate change, which we do. Uh, But it's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And part of what makes it more complicated than that is, um, I mentioned in 2020, we started to see this population decline. The same year, a... Uh, a doctor, uh, like PhD doctor, who had worked for NOAA for uh, 25 years, mm-hmm. came out and actually is like, as a whistleblower, is coming out and revealing information that they had seen in 1983, when that initial king crab uh, community collapse had happened, that NOAA had hit, that NOAA had like specifically and like intentionally obfuscated at the time, basically to say, I saw that happen in 1983. Mm-hmm. I think we should be looking into that. I think we should be looking at what happened in 1983 and be a little bit skeptical when organizations like NOAA, who that otherwise does really good science, kind of oversimplifies matters like this. Mm -hmm. And they oversimplified what happened in 1983 in a very particular way, where the, the king crab population collapse in 1983 they reported that it was like warming seas, I believe. They reported that it was something with the environment that changed. That is what caused this collapse in the king crab fishing mm-hmm. uh, fisheries. What they did not report, but what they did have evidence of was that kind of equal to the environmental factors, which were definitely there, like Noah did not make up, didn't, didn't make up any of that data. Um, what they did was that they kind of cut out this other information they had about trawling. Mm. So, yeah, the way these fishing seasons go is that you will have like one kind of fishing will happen early spring. The next kind of fishing will happen um, kind of summer. And then there's usually like one or two other phases where like a type of fishing will happen late summer, early fall. Mm-hmm. And then winter is like an off an off season. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what was happening was that it was known to a lot of people who worked on these fishing vessels, including a bunch of people from NOAA and from the Coast Guard who would go on these fishing vessels to like essentially certify that they're following the law, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're making sure that they are recording their catches accurately. They're not trying to hide how much they're they're fishing or or like overblow how much they're getting um, and that they're practicing – like the standards that we hold fishing vessels to because you don't want excessive bycatch, right? right? Um, You don't want people putting out nets where you're not allowed to have nets or at times when like, no, you can't put uh, there at one time there was a big problem with people fishing, like overfishing in Monterey Bay actually. And like putting out nets in Monterey Bay when Monterey Bay is a really important breeding ground for whales Mm -hmm. at certain times of the year. So like, Noah and the Coast Guard were going out and they were monitoring this stuff and then they would come back and whoever was in charge of like communicating what was found from their like onboard scientists and um, Noah actually has its own police force. Hmm. So like (laughs) all its law enforcement um, people was just completely disregarding or fully downplaying the amount of crabs and juvenile crabs in particular that were being caught up in the bycatch of trawling. So mm. those fishing boats that drag a net across the seafloor. Yeah. Um, 
And so in 1983 with the King Crabs, uh, this doctor, who I believe did actually like, yeah, uh, Dr. C. Braxton Dew, a fisheries biologist. So he is like putting his name on this. He is saying, I was there in 1983. I worked for NOAA. Um, you need to remember that NOAA is like underneath the Department of Commerce. Mm-hmm. And so at this time, like trying to maintain the like very important commerce that was going on with these fishing vessels took priority to being honest in our reporting. Right. And they lied. And they lied specifically or like they lied through omission, right? Specifically to try to ensure that these these fishing vessels could still go out. Mm-hmm. Because the government didn't want to cause economic panic and the government didn't want to kind of disrupt this source of like like really like uh important economic source for individuals who live along the mostly along the Californian coast. Right. A little bit in Oregon, a little bit in Alaska. And so Dr. Dew is like coming out and saying like Noah right now, like what I am seeing them report about the Bering Sea crab populations and seeing them, you know, allow for reporting that is like, oh, they just disappeared. That completely tracks with what happened in 1983. Mm-hmm. And so like it's it's a really interesting case where it's not just um, it kind of brings together a lot of different pieces of things that you that you will see. Where you're saying like, oh, it's environmental concerns, like global climate change is really an issue. But it's also a matter of organizations not wanting, not wanting to admit that these like capitalistic ventures are part of the problem. Right. Not wanting to admit that we need to regulate businesses because that's a lot harder. Um, or it's, it's like, it's not even harder. It is a thing that is actually doable. But if it's doable, then it makes people mad. Yeah. Whereas, like, climate change is such a big, complicated issue that it's easier to put out alarming information about climate change that is accurate, but doesn't actually speak to a, like, well, here's a simple step forward. Here's a, like, one step that we can take that would make a big difference. Whereas if you say, like, oh, trawling vessels are, like, a huge part of the problem here we should you know regulate trawling we should just make it so you can't trawl Mm -hmm. or you can't trawl in a lot of these areas that that is a thing we could do but then you have to enforce it and then you have people who like their family fishing company now can't operate and now the government has to step in and you know has to like like a responsible government that actually works for its people (laughs) uh would have to provide for those Right. For those industries that did have to be stopped, that did have to be slowed down enough that people couldn't make a living through them. Right. It is kind of like, I don't know, you always think of like climate change denial as being a big problem. But I feel like embracing the idea of climate change in order to like just use it as a scapegoat for (laughs) for easily fixable, you know, policy problems and things like that. I don't know. It's almost scarier. It does feel like that's kind of the that's it feels like. That has been a, a very, like, neoliberal way to frame climate change for quite a while now, mm-hmm. right? We're like, oh, climate change is real, but also it's so big that every that if we're not all doing something individually, nothing will happen. It's not worth it, right? right? So, yeah, why bother like, if we can't fix it? <laughs> or, 
or like why bother or like well you're not doing your part and that's so it's your fault actually when like that's ridiculous yeah um whereas like the conservative thing this is definitely like something i heard from my very conservative family before i uh stopped stopped talking with them was well it it's too late yeah it's too late it's already too big of an issue so whatever why why care um which i just i do not get i cannot wrap my head around that kind of thinking no especially if you're like if you you were talking about like boomers just older generations where it's like but you have kids and grandkids that will like that will directly have to deal with this right not my problem how (laughs) how can you call millennials and zillennials and like whatever else like how can you call them selfish when you're literally saying i'll die before this is a problem so fuck you got mine yeah i don't um yeah so that's that's so boomers (laughs) killed the crabs (laughs) boomers killed the crabs radio killed the video star yeah. no other way around whatever um yeah so that's our first story it's frustrating but at least now we can answer the question of where all those crabs go um probably into trawling nets is bycatch yeah um so you said this is like one of the only sources you could find that was really like pointing this out as one of the main issues or If you were to go to a lot of the mainstream reporting on it that came out within the first couple of days of the collapse being like uh, reported by, I think, pretty pretty much by NOAA and then through mainstream news sources, Mm -hmm. most of them will either vaguely or directly point to climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't until... So like this whistleblower report came out in 2020, 2021. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I didn't see any reporting on it. I don't remember seeing anybody talking about this last year. Right. I don't think it was like a huge thing because the collapse of the fisheries wasn't as prominent a news thing. And because our news, like, you know, it was 2021. Yeah. We had <laughs> we got a lot of other stuff 2. going 0. on. <laughs> yeah. Right. We had like, are we, is the pandemic over? Is it still happening? People freaking out because they can't have a big wedding. People freaking out because they did have a big wedding and then it killed Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A lot to think about. Yeah. Um, so it just didn't go anywhere. And then since I saw the thread from um, Spencer from Unpopular Science, uh, I have seen the couple of news articles that have come out after this thread came out that I found about 50-50 on whether or not they talked about trawling or like most of them specifically just pointed you to this tweet thread because it's 2022 and we live in a like technocratic hellscape yeah um gotta love it and it's not that you know the responsible ones are are summarizing the thread after having like read obviously like live science does a pretty good job of like they clearly have both read what spencer put out and then gone you know it's a science reporting um website Mm -hmm. They then went through, you can tell they, like, read through the actual whistleblower report. They read through what happened there. They had somebody around who knew what knew about the fisheries collapse in 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's not that trawling is probably the main thing. Like, an, like no, uh, sea warming probably is, like, the biggest problem. Right. But it is very likely that trawling is kind of what put the community over the brink. Okay. Right. Where you have like, uh, if you look at 
population models, which is uh, basically a it's it's an algorithm that will use a bunch of different inputs depending on like what kind of population you're looking at. And it'll spit out something that usually looks like a sinusoidal wave. So a wave that just sort of like goes up and down really gradually and really regularly mm-hmm. in, a, in a steady like repeating cycle. If you think about like any kind of wave form or if you picture a radio wave in your head, you're, you're picturing a sinusoidal wave. Mm-hmm. That is what like population numbers generally look like uh, either over the course of a year or a decade whatever the life cycle is where you have a period where the population goes up really high usually for like fish or like plankton as where you know as an oceanography student we mostly look at these for uh, plankton because plankton is something oceanographers will look at Mm -hmm. where we don't look at most other marine species Okay. Yeah, because they're like hardly animals anyway. <laughs> a lot of them are technically plants. Yeah. So, yes. So yeah, we'll look at that, and what you will see is like in the spring, the the number of plankton that you'll find in an area goes up as they're like, okay, we got all this like fresh nutrient rich water from snowmelt and rain. We have all this sunlight. It's a little bit warmer now, but it's not like so warm that we're dying. So this is great. Mm-hmm. So the numbers will go up. And then you will have like, oh, okay, well, now there's a bunch of plankton in the water. So let's just start dying now. <laughs> well, yeah, so it's like a combination of things, right? You'll end up with mortality. So you have like fish coming in and just eating everything and chomping on it. Um, you'll have bigger plankton that come in and start like chomping on them, mm-hmm. um, like krill. Uh, and then eventually it gets hot and they run out of nutrients. And so then they just start dying because it's fucking hot. They don't have any food. Mm-hmm. And so the number will go down. And then, you know, it starts again the next year. And that's, like, a pretty normal shape for what the population of any kind of, like, big animal community will look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you add other factors in to these models, the line will kind of wobble. Okay. Um, And so you can see that, like, okay, if you add extra nutrients in, right, like, what's going to happen? Well, initially, the amount of plankton or or crabs or anything is going to go up more because they have more food available to them. Um, but then, okay, well, you have all these, all these new babies being born, um, and, you know, the number of predators is, is going to go up a little bit, but the predators usually have longer life cycles. It just takes longer to grow a fish, right? Mm -hmm. So what will happen is eventually you'll see more like predators, but you'll also just run out of food faster. Yeah. And so you'll start dying off a lot faster because even though you added a little bit of extra food... Um, babies need much less food than adults. Mm-hmm. And so as they mature and they get older and they eat a lot more, you just run out of food, you run out of oxygen um, or carbon, depending on like, you know, if you're phytoplankton or not phytoplankton, whatever, you just run out of nutrients faster as they mature. And so the line that was like a nice, even kind of up and down wave will kind of like get a little bit higher at first and then it will come down a little bit quicker. So now you got like everything kind of bunching up a little bit. Mm-hmm might die off even more than normal because you've depleted your food so much and as you know as a plankton die and you know it's just what i'm familiar with (laughs) as plankton die and they start to decay uh they'll kind of make the water around them toxic right Right, the algal blooms and all that fun stuff yeah exactly exactly so you end up with like a harmful algal bloom where you got like a bunch of algae and then it dies off and now you have just like a bunch of dead shit in the water killing all the things that could have lived otherwise. Right. And so you'll end up with these like wobbles in your, in your population chart. 
But most of the time, depending on the type of like interruption you kind of threw into that that wave, that form, uh, the wobbles will work themselves out and you'll kind of end, end up back at an equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Maybe a new equilibrium, maybe the same equilibrium, but you'll find that kind of like nice, comfortable place again. Right. So is this just a bump on the crab wobble or are we talking like, you know, they might not come back? We don't, we don't know. know yet. Okay. Um. That's the because big the question, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah, that is like the kind of the question that should be being asked is the question that like ecologists are definitely going to be asking is every time one of these disturb like disturbances or perturbations happens, like is this just a wobble and we'll be able to bounce back or you know, is this too much? When you see reports of, um, you'll see reports that like, okay, we only have this many babies in this species and so they go from like endangered to or like critically endangered to uh, there's like a stage on that spectrum that is like basically extinct, but not really mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, we only have, we've only counted like 20 vaquita in uh, the Bay of Baja. And we know that like, according to our population numbers, unless there are this many more vaquita, which is a very tiny little porpoise, mm-hmm. it's extremely cute. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it is probably extinct. Oh. Um, hopefully not, though. Maybe they're just hiding. That's what I like to tell myself. Yeah. Um, we kn- But we know, like, we know that, like, according to the population models, like, what we understand of, like, how they reproduce... Um, they probably can't recover because their numbers appear to be below this certain point. Okay. Um, but you have to have like a really good measure of how many uh, like sexually mature individuals you have for a species or like how many eggs were laid or larvae were produced. Which is very hard and to count. <laughs> so hard to count, especially for a Bering Sea snow crab that puts its little larva at the very bottom of the Bering Sea. Right. Um, where the only way to get samples of it would be like a version of trawling. So you don't want to fucking do that. Yeah. Um, what is, what is kind of being proposed by that whistleblower from NOAA is that environmental stuff, um, the sea ice melt, especially in 2017 when it was like almost gone, uh, was a massive perturbation to their like regular community life cycle. Mm-hmm. The trawling was the thing that potentially put it over the edge of just like a really big wobble to like maybe unsustainable. Right. Yeah. It's one of those maybe like, maybe the well, point. Well, the adults are dead, but we still got the babies. Well, shit, they came for the babies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you trawl, you're not, you know, you're picking up, it really is just scraping the entire bottom of the seafloor. I cannot emphasize enough how much I think trawling is like, truly abhorrent right it's bad for like a bunch uh, of not just crabs right <laughs> I mean, like, no it's like it, oh, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about um marine snow and like how long it takes shit floating in the ocean to settle at the bottom of the ocean like it takes eons to form a couple centimeters of sediment at the bottom of the deep ocean mm-hmm. so when you're trawling and you're just scraping up you know the top like half a foot couple of feet depending on how soft stuff is and you're just scraping that up and like pushing it all back up into the air like you're destroying all of the communities that have been living in that sediment for literally like millennia Mm -hmm. right 
thousands of years. Yeah, it's just like a deep sea um, bulldozer. Yeah, where like you don't you you know how long it took to create that community, sort of, and like now you're destroying massive swaths of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, trawling generally, I think, should be like just completely fucking illegal. Yeah, and this isn't to say that I like necessarily think uh like small it's really complicated when we talk about small fisheries like um or not small fisheries because like fisheries is just like the part of the ocean where a fish population lives yeah. but small like fishing organizations yeah. businesses yes yeah exactly um because it's they're just it's a weird subset of people very like libertarian not in the like maybe we should lower the age of consent laws libertarian, but like small L just, I want to do my own thing. I want to be able to exist independent of society at large. Right. Where like a lot of the, a lot of the small fishing organizations know, right. That you can't overfish. Mm -hmm. They, they know that that's a problem because when you go out into the same parts of the ocean every year and you run the same operation every year and you're making like enough money to kind of sustain you and your family and your boat and your crew, but that's kind of it. That's really all you're, you're not trying to get rich at all. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be somebody who essentially doesn't think that, <laughs> that tech companies are inherently evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can have that kind of like, you know, tech companies are probably good because if I upgrade my boat, my whole operation runs a little bit smoother. Or you can think that like, well, oil companies aren't inherently evil because a lot of oil companies will sell um, petroleum to to fishing, like to fishing boats for uh, not like a discount, but just like a different rate. Mm-hmm. Like they won't overcharge them uh, because they know essentially that like having the having these fishing boats on your side is like really good for PR. Mm-hmm. Um well at the same time having a basic understanding of com- community dynamics of like okay, well if we overfish at this time or like I'm not like you know they're not going to take female crabs. Like they just aren't going to do it. They're not going to take female fish, especially younger ones or ones that are sexually mature because they understand that that just hurts them next year. Yeah. Um so like I am I don't think that small organizations that do like certain types of net fishing should be hated. Um a lot of the trawling actually like, is a thing that small fishing organizations hate mm-hmm. because to trawl you usually have to have like a much bigger a bigger fishing vessel. You have to have a lot more equipment because now you have to have a much stronger crane to like haul up a trawling net. Mm-hmm. Um most of the organizations that practice trawling are bigger, right? Not necessarily huge, but they are, like, larger organizations that are, like, have been known to be actively fucking up the other fisheries. Yeah. So, like, I hate trawling. Um, I do not inherently hate or have, like, necessarily have issues with, uh, like, a small fishing organization or fishing, like, fishing businesses generally i think they can be done in a way that is very sustainable there have actually been like one of the first lawsuits maybe the first lawsuit um against exxon mobil for its uh you know cover-up of the climate crisis mm-hmm. is from fishers yeah. is from 
those groups. Those people um, who are like directly affected by the impacts of, <laughs> you know, killing yeah, off the, those things that they're trying to harvest. Who, like, oh, and people who would like vote Republican constantly, who probably do think Reagan was a pretty cool guy. Yeah. Um, but they were also the people who like, when we had like, I think, you know, I think 1983 was one of the first times that it like started to become a thing. And it wasn't like, I don't believe the lawsuits from that, that group actually came through until like the 2000s or like the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't want to do it. Yeah. Oh no, the the lawsuits from them definitely came through later because it was after it's in the last like ten years when all those documents from Exxon were leaked mm. that revealed that they had scientists actively studying climate change and then they actively were burying these things. Yeah. Um, which has been like known to environmental scientists for a long time, but wasn't public knowledge in the same way until more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so they like, right? Like it is very specific practices that are the issue here. It is very specific things that organizations that are otherwise really good, like NOAA are covering up because of bigger, like pressures from, from the government, from the department of commerce, yeah. from, you know, whoever is like, uh, this not the Secretary of the Interior because that's the Department of the Interior, but like from the President's cabinet, essentially. Right. So, yeah, it's almost like we're no, reading this... a book about how bad that can be for science. Oh, <laughs> it's crazy! It's almost like the same person who wrote um, Science on a Mission also wrote an entire or co-wrote an entire book about this. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> so, how about how like people covering for the tobacco industry would go on to directly work on the cover-ups for big big oil right that's that's our first news story well so hopefully the next one is uh you said it was good news right oh the next one is fun i think um sam what do you know about eels oh we don't know where they fuck i know that Okay, but sam sam did we find out we found out where they fought. Ah! <laughs> so that's that's it. That's the e- that's the eel story. Oh, that makes me so happy. And so I was like, already I'd seen the crab stuff, and I was like, wow, I would talk about this, but like, man, that's like, that's that's heavy. It needs to be discussed. I, we could get into it, but I don't know how to make that one anything but like frustrating. And then the eels came out, and I was like, oh well, shit, that's fine. That makes We're me so done. happy. Was it the sargasso sea? Oh Yes. <laughs> and so we are going to, um, first off, if you, if you have no idea, uh, I just, I saw the headline, uh, scientists track eels to their ocean breeding grounds. And I was like, oh my God, I am excited. And then I was like, wait, <laughs> that's weird. It's just a weird thing to like be excited about. So. Yeah, it's weird, I guess, if you don't know that we haven't been able to, you know, figure out where they've been doing it. But if you know, you know, if you right? know it's you like know. the shark thing. Uh, this is true for a number of otherwise very well-researched marine species where we will either know, we will either know where they lay eggs um, or where they fuck, but we will not know both of those things. That's so So weird. this is true for uh, whale sharks, among other types of shark species, where I believe we pretty <laughs> much know where they go to fuck. And where they go to lay eggs, but we've never been able to, like, observe it because it's really deep in the ocean. Yeah. Or if we have observed it, it's, like, a handful of times, 
And we don't think those are like particularly normal cases mm-hmm. because they're not happening so deep that we, we can't follow and track them. Yeah. Um, the thing with eels, though, is just... Uh, we, why? Eels right? are of weird. Of all things. Eels are so weird. It's so cool. Yeah. I am going to learn more about eels. I had read before that um, like, when people first kind of were discovering eels, they, were, they assumed that they were made of mud. Or some weird thing. Okay, we're gonna get. I found out why that is. Oh. Okay, we're gonna talk about the history of why we don't know where eels fuck. Okay. Um, and we're gonna eventually talk about a man named Ernst Johannes Schmidt, Mm -hmm. which is a name that just sounds like it would be made up for an RPG that takes place in Scandinavia. Yeah. Love it. He was born in Jägersbris, Denmark. (laughs) Uh, But we're not. We're not gonna start with uh, Johannes here, Ernst. Um, because the history of eels and people goes back further than that. Mm -hmm. So eels have been a very, very common, um, staple food for European communities, in particular, North, Northern, Northern European communities for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Basically, as long as we have records of people living in and around Northern Europe, Scandinavia, the, like the islands that would become the UK, British Isles, like wherever, um, they have been eating eels, which like a lot surprises the heck out of me because it's probably just my ignorance speaking. But the only time I've ever encountered eel that I could eat has been in like Japanese food. Same, and so I kind of associate that with like you know like something that people eat in Asian cuisine, not in like European (laughs) areas. I guess. Yeah, same, right? Like the. The place that I had first encountered eating an eel at all was always, like, on sushi. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, like, you know, after being in Okinawa, like, actually, like, in Japan, um, and then in Korea, where you can also find eels um, in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Especially if you're, like, when we were in Pusan, like, there was a lot more uh, just eel dishes. Yeah. Um, parts of Seoul will have, like, especially if you're in parts of Seoul that aren't as touristy. And so it is just sort of a place that, like, like middle-aged and older Korean people will go for, like, a home-style meal. Yeah. Um, you get eels. Yeah, just tanks fine. and tanks of eels. Tons of them. They'll, like, barbecue them or they'll just sort of, like, chuck them in soups. Yeah. You know, you just have them and it's fine. Um, honestly, I was really creeped out by eels on foods when I first... I Well, like, I used to hate fish. Not because I actually t- tasted fish, just they creeped me out. Mm-hmm. Um, as a food stuff, yeah. not as a creature. Uh, and then at some point, I think in between like living in Monterey for a while and then coming to Hawaii, I became okay with like fish if I couldn't tell it was fish. Mm-hmm. Um, like if it was cooked in a certain way or like had enough sauce in on the it middle or... of, yeah, in the middle of like sushi or whatever, yeah. eventually I would be okay with like poke, which is like cubes of raw fish. Um, on rice. It's like a deconstructed sushi roll. Yeah, sushi it's bowl. very good. I fucking love it. Um, but, like, eels were the thing that took me the longest to to get over. Mm-hmm. Because the texture of them was really weird to me. They're weird. I like I them. I just sort of get, like... Oh, I really like them. Now I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, especially since uh, going, like, mostly pescatarian. Uh, eel is the closest thing to just the taste of, like... Pork? chicken or pork yeah <laughs> yeah that i have found it's just that the texture is like odd right and especially it's looking like, at them it, from like their their live state they're very gooey 
uh, wormy kind of dudes. So you wouldn't expect like a, an almost landish taste. <laughs> yeah, they taste like uh, they tend to taste like barbecued chicken or pork, but then they have the texture of like a pate. Yeah. Very off-putting. Yeah, and I don't like to eat foods when I don't know where they fuck. So it's you know I'm glad I that think this that's has just really a... come out <laughs> now. Really, it's something we should all be considering anytime we eat. Where does this food reproduce? Yeah. Um. Okay, so eels. Eels have been around in Northern Europe. I also did not think like I knew they were a thing, but as a staple food, it did not occur to me. Right. Um. And European eels are different than the eels that i would see in tanks at like fish markets in korea mm-hmm. or like those eels are pretty thin um like maybe an inch to an inch and a half in diameter they're not like big yeah they're like little snakes uh eels in europe are like fat oh now, this is like obviously just like a nice little painting oh it's a Monet <laughs> painting oh lovely um but if i find a better picture it's like it's it's thick. It's like three to four inches around, pretty chunky. Yeah, like a moray. If you were to pick eel. it up, yeah. Oh man, I saw a dead moray on the beach Ugh. a while ago. Kind of washed up after a storm. Is it a big uh, boy? Honestly, fucking red. It was. I mean, it's hard to tell because it was probably bloated oh, yeah. um, from death, right? <laughs> uh, but it was like five or six inches around. Like I would not have been able to hold it with one hand. Dang. Um. So, a chunky boy, mm-hmm. and I would like to. Like, that's one of those things, reading this, where, I, like, I almost learned too much about eels. And I was like, <laughs> no, I don't have, we don't have time to learn this much about eels. We already have so much to talk about with how and where eels fuck. Yeah. So, European eels, they've just been around forever. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have this little, like, freshwater, they were always found in freshwater, first off, which is, like, not my experience with any eels that I've ever known. Mm-hmm. Um always found in freshwater in rivers and streams or like river fed ponds uh, throughout Europe, as you can see, including around the Mediterranean parts of North Africa um, up to Iceland, like hella eels up in Iceland. Weird. So people knew about them. People ate them. But when we get into like the, um, that, uh, that period of history where like, you know, kind of around like pre-Darwin to post-Darwin when like talking like 1750s to 1890s-ish, right? Mm -hmm. Like that century where people were just like, oh shit, we can do science. Like (laughs) let's kind of like formalize scientific inquiry. Yeah. What is the shit that we've been eating for all these years? (laughs) Right. And like, we're not doing, you know, alchemy anymore. We're, we think that we're beyond, you know, we're kind of moving beyond the age of I'm not going to say we're moving beyond the age of humors because we were still like bloodletting all the way up through like George Washington and shit. So, you know, not quite there yet, but uh, we're going to write stuff down systematically. We're going to write stuff down. We're going to share it with our scientific colleagues. We're going to ask questions and try to get answers. And we're going to record not just the answers we come to, but how we come to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, What a good time to be a wealthy European dude. Um, Is there ever a bad time? God. I guess it depends on the part of Europe. (laughs) Yeah, right. But generally, no. Yeah. (laughs) They've had it too easy for too long. (laughs) But uh, the thing with eels was that, like, the only time you ever saw eels in Europe 
they were basically adults. They were basically full grown. You would find like some eels that were like not full grown, but they were still um, like like not not even adolescents, right? right? Like if they were a human, they would be like that seventeen to twenty four year age range where you think you're an adult, but you're still accidentally acting like a child. Yeah. Um, Is that supposed to stop at like 20, 24, 25? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm 30 now and I'm still recording a podcast where I look at Wikipedia articles. About how so, eels fuck. So. About how eels fuck. I got really just very excited about that. I spent like the last, I spent hundreds of hours in the last two months playing every console based Legend of Zelda game. So we're doing great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fine. Um, but like they so they they didn't find juvenile eels. Do eels lay eggs? That's weird. Uh, do they lay eggs? If they do, they've never seen an eel egg. Yes. Like, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, they lay eggs. Mm, nobody had ever seen an egg. Nobody had seen a larva. Nobody knew what like the the young stage of an eel looked like. It's called an elver. How cute! I know. That's the other thing when you start learning about like uh marine, especially fish, but also like arthropods, isopods, whatever. You start learning about their life cycles. You learn all these like little goofy names that mm-hmm. they have for the different processes. So, like, um. In this, the European eel life cycle, you can see that it's, like, coded as, like, yellow and then blue, where, like, there are stages of the European eel's life that it will live only in fresh water. Mm-hmm. And then it will do this thing called silvering, and the eel will silver, and I think it kind of changes color a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, where it goes into the ocean. Um, but nobody knew this in Europe. All they knew <laughs> was that the eels would show up, they would be big enough to eat, and then the eels might disappear for a little bit, and then more eels would show up, they would be big enough to eat. Yeah. Did anybody know that things could cross between, like, freshwater to ocean water? I think some species were known. Like, if it was a species that just lived in and around estuaries, like, you would know that, okay. right? Like. Um, the, uh, the Native American tribes in the Pacific Northwest of North America and Canada, like Canada, the U.S., uh, Oh, yeah, they're pretty Alaska. familiar with the salmon life cycle. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, there are species where, like, because their progress in and out of the ocean, they look so similar and they kind of follow really easy to, to see patterns of, like, when they go out to sea, when they come back in, um, it was known that they could do that Mm -hmm. um but it was mostly known in species like the salmon where it looks the same Mm -hmm. right like uh like the the pacific salmon might as it matures it will like take on some different characteristics but it will still have that characteristic like pink belly right Right. like you're always going to see it and know that like well that's a salmon um but like why would an eel need to do that i guess well like if you never and if you're talking about like something that goes way out into the ocean not like you know eels don't stay coastal and that's what people didn't know is like you wouldn't have a reason to believe that like something that looks like an eel doesn't exactly look like it can swim very fast Mm -hmm. or very far um you wouldn't suspect that it moved very far away from the continent Right. right and so for centuries and centuries um people had no idea and that is why like that not being able to see the young like 
um, larval stages or just the really early stages or the eggs or just a pregnant eel. Uh, not being able to see that is why people assumed that like, okay, well then they must just like <laughs> come up fully out of from the, the mud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, you know, and you would see uh, in areas where you have streams that don't, that are seasonal, right? Mm-hmm. You might have a time when the stream goes from kind of like dry after a summer and get a bunch of rains that will like basically dampen the mud dampen the soil or the bottom of the like the stream bed enough that it's pretty muddy Mm -hmm. um and then the eels because they can breathe through their skin are able to like kind of like get through the mud and like travel upstream if they want to Mm -hmm. if you have uh, a stream that is about to dry out or just like you know kind of in a lot of areas in northern europe they have like it's uh very temperate there's a lot of rains that will like fall for a day or two and then it'll stop for a week and then fall for a day or two so you'll have areas where like the mud is pretty constant during certain times Mm -hmm. um the eels if they can tell that the water level is going down they'll just bury themselves in the mud and they'll wait like a frog oh yeah they just hang out there just chill just wait kind of i think they kind of hibernate a little bit like pseudo hibernation um and yeah, that's like, that's all people knew about eels is that huh. they would like show up. Sometimes they would kind of crawl out of the mud. They looked freaky. Um, and it was known that they could live for like a really pretty long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason we know that is this little extra eel fact about um, an eel named, I'm going to call him Alan because I don't speak Swedish. <laughs> and the Swedish name for this eel looks like Alla or Alan, but I am positive that's not correct. Um, I guess there is like, there was at least some amount of a trend in some places in Europe where if you had a well just like dug into your backyard or your community, um, you didn't want bug larvae getting into your water, right? Because it would like, one, just fucking gross. Like you don't want to pull up a bucket and it's full of mosquito larvae. Right. Um, but also, like, it can be toxic to drink. Mm-hmm. It, it can actually, like, pollute your, your water source. And so people would occasionally just chuck eels into their wells. Huh. Um, people, I think, have also done this with, like, things like catfish. Yeah. I've heard of it with, like, that... goldfish in, um... Actually, I saw it on a TV show. But it was, like, goldfish in a horse's water trough to keep the bugs out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because they'll, like, eat all the mosquito bits. Mm-hmm. Because has, as somebody who grew up around a bunch of horses with water troughs... Mosquitoes fucking love that shit. Yeah. And it's gross for you and the horses. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, people knew that eels could live quite a while because you chuck an eel or two down in your well. You would never see them breed. So, like, you wouldn't, you know, if you chucked other stuff down in your well, you could end up with, like, a bunch of fish in there that are actually now, like, pooping too much for you to drink the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but you chuck two eels in there, no problem. You're never going to get baby eels, which doesn't help with the mystery of it. Right. Still makes it just more confusing. <laughs> Um, and you just have an eel whenever you need to eat an eel. Uh-huh. Um, and so by doing that, people had figured out pretty early that, and we'll come back to Alla, Alan, whatever that eel's name is. Um, eels can live a pretty long time. Uh, we now know that eels like in captivity can live, you know, about 80 years on average. Whereas wow. like in the wild, they only live like 10 to 15 years is pretty standard. Yeah. That seems like a long time. Or something like a, I don't know, just like a squishy water snake. Yeah, and like it has no right to live that long. 
I want to say they die after they breed. Dang. Do, do, do. So they go like 80 that's... years and then they get some and die? And then, yeah, pretty much. So like they can live for quite a while as long as they don't go and breed. Because I'm pretty sure, yeah, they don't come back to shore. Mm. And it might just be that, right? Like there's probably some combination of um, hormones that get released uh, that kind of like take all the energy out of them. And then also like we will find out the the travel that they have to do to get to their breeding grounds it probably does just like fucking basically kill them just because it's a lot of stress on your body. Right. Your little, your little wiggly eel body. Well, it's so, like when we talked about like trans fish, you know, some of them that yeah. could go from male to female, like couldn't always go back. And I assume it might be similar with yeah. like the silvering process or whatever. I believe just so. Can't yeah. unsilver. <laughs> yeah. And you like start silvered and then you go to not silver. Oh, okay. So like, it's a like a one, two, one kind of deal. Yeah. Um, but now we're going to get to, we're going to start getting to, uh, Ernst Johanna Schmidt, uh, in the 1950s to 1980s and 90s, people had, like, really decided, like, okay, let's fucking, we're going to figure out these goddamn eels. They've been around for too long. They've been getting away with this. We are no longer the kind of, like, silly little weirdos who think they pop up out of the ground. We kind of realized that that's maybe a little ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to start, like, really, really looking at these eels. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only for, you know, curiosity's sake, but also because I th- I want to say there was, like, there was, like, during the mini ice age in the 1800s, there was, like, a shortage of eels, like, and people were like, well, we want to prevent that from happening again. How do we, how do we get these eels to fuck? How do we breed eels? Yeah. Eel farms don't work. So people started looking around all over the coast, um, the coast of the Mediterranean, the coast of Europe, some of the outlying islands, and eventually... They would find some juvenile eels off the coast of Italy, I believe, like in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And so that was um, fairly early. Yeah, 1956. um, They, you know, they found eel larvae, but they misclassified them. It took them a couple years to figure it out. So then by 19, you know, 60s, 70s, people realized, okay, these are, sorry, 18, 1856, 1860s and 70s. Mm people are realizing like all right eels in salt water that is a thing we found them in the mediterranean we're gonna start looking for like if eels larva is being found in the med then they probably have sex and breed like in the deep water in the mediterranean and that's why we can't see them problem solved done Mm -hmm. um wrong (laughs) they were incorrect (laughs) um they were incorrect, but they were incorrect in that way where it's like the person who came up with the theory is well known and well respected and nobody wants to tell him that he was wrong. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't stop people though. There are people who are like, okay, well, we've spent every summer for years looking in the Mediterranean, trying to find more eels, trying to like track these eels as they come out of springs and out of like rivers and streams mm-hmm. um and we're just not getting any further we find find more larvae but the larvae is always in like the same kind of age and it's never like younger or older than that mm-hmm. and that's weird and so finally um Ernst schmidt 
uh, and his mentor, like at the Danish biological station, uh, decide to start looking elsewhere. And they have heard reports that eel larvae had been found on the Faroe Islands, mm-hmm. which I'm going to pull up a map. I had a map up and then I forgot. Um, so we have our range of all of like Northern Europe is like most of Europe, honestly, coastal Europe is where we find these eels. And then they find eel larvae here, Faroe okay. Islands, halfway between like actually almost like directly in the middle of Iceland, the British Isles and Norway. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so Schmidt and all of his Danish buddies are like, why? Why would they be here? Like, what would convince these eels to be here? Um, And there's, like, options, right? We have, like, maybe they're just traveling between Iceland and Norway. Maybe, right, there's just, like, that's that seems to be the... One second, motorcycle. Got so loud. <laughs> okay. Um... Right, like, kind of seems to be the most obvious solution is that they're just, I don't know, they just, like, travel between these areas where we know they're already, like, adult populations are formed. Right. Um, but Ernst and his, like, fellow researchers were like, that's not a good enough answer. We don't like it. And so what they did was they spent years systematically going out in, like, the spring and summer collecting samples of eels and eel larvae and what they would do is they would kind of like set out a circle and they would collect samples from like around the perimeter of this circle Mm -hmm. and then looking at the samples they would say okay we have found the youngest eels in this part of the circle and then they would move the center of their next circle there Okay. And then they would do it again and so they are like slowly identifying like moving in the direction of the youngest eels that they can find. And they do this every year for years. Mm-hmm. They'll come out and they'll do these surveys. And eventually they just keep moving until they end up kind of around the Azores. Mm-hmm. Initially. It's around like Portugal, right? From Portugal. Yeah. That's okay. where my I'm people pretty are sure from. I zoomed <laughs> on the right one. And that's like, that's, That's starting in the Faroe Islands, right? Like starting up, you know, north of the UK, east, southeast of Iceland, and ending up way south by Portugal. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Azores were like covered in eel larvae, covered in like mature eels and eel larvae. So they're like, okay, this is definitely like important. This is an important spot for eels. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't done, right? Because they still hadn't found like the youngest eels. And so they continue their process. And eventually they do end up in the Sargasso Sea. So they end up way far to the west, um, kind of off the coast, like more off the coast of North America, but still like in the middle of like nothing in the Atlantic, in the middle of this area that is just identified by very, very still waters and a bunch of floating Sargasso seaweed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is where they also find for the, for the first time, in history, in 1923, they identify eel eggs. And so, like, they did it, uh-huh. right? You have eggs. You have the thing that will become an eel in the Sargasso Sea. And then 
nothing else happens for a hundred years. <laughs> it's like, okay, good and enough. People, <laughs> that was the thing is that it wasn't good enough. People were like blown away by this. Um, a lot of people kind of thought up to this point that Johanna Schmidt was like not on a fool's errand, but they were just like really skeptical mm-hmm. that he was actually following any kind of meaningful trail. I can't really blame them. Right. And this is like, you know, it was interrupted by World War One. Have you heard of it? Oh, um, yeah. That thing. So, like, right. Um, so, after World War One, people were even more like, I mean, yeah, we want to know more about eels so that we can breed eels. But, like, at this point, if we haven't figured it out, right? Like, science is no more questions to answer. It's 1923. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when he found those eggs, people were like, oh, holy shit. Like, no, this this is real, right? More people went out. More people found eggs in the Sargasso Sea. So now we have, like, we know. We know that for sure eels end up here. Right. And they lay eggs. But people still didn't know, like, okay, well, like, is this where they breed? Or do they, like, you know, do they do they meet up more someplace else and then they just come here to lay their eggs? How do they get here? This is, like, uh, 14... Or, yeah, 1,400 miles is, like, the longest stretch of open water that they track these eels over. That is the distance from Seattle to Roswell, New Mexico. Um, It's halfway from Seattle to Hawaii. It's just, it's a long way. Yeah. For fish that have such a weird shape. (laughs) Um, And so that was, like, people tried. People tried to track eels. Uh, They tried to monitor eels. They tried to simulate what they would think an eel might go through uh, in a lab. So they would, like, put the eels in, like, one of those infinity pools, but for an eel. Mm -hmm. And then they would just have it running water past the eel. So the eel had to swim for, I don't know, months or some shit. That sounds miserable. Um, But nothing. Like, they couldn't get eels to fuck. They couldn't find where they go because they, you know, when you move into the Atlantic... Um, that's a lot of ocean. Right. And it's not like they're traveling at the surface of the ocean. So how do you, how do you follow them? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was it. Like for the last hundred, like, it's not that people weren't trying to figure out what happened with eels. Um, like there have been other things that we looked at where, like when we did talk about chapter two of science on a mission, people were just like, oh, we basically figured out deep sea circulation Fuck it. We don't need to look at that anymore. Mm-hmm. Not with this one. People <laughs> were trying to figure it out and they just had no idea. Um, until. Until October 2022, when we get these scientists actually tracking these eels in real time to their breeding grounds. And so you can kind of see how, like. If you are a person who understands the mystery of eels, this has been built up into such a like ridiculous but massive issue for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine eel biologists. This is like their thing, right? Right. This is the thing that haunts every eel biologist. <laughs> yeah, I wonder I what they're like gonna to do with the rest of their career now. Just like incredible ennui, right? Yeah. Um, it's like that type of penguin where when you lift it up, 
it just like develops depression because now it has been higher than it's ever been in its life. Oh, that's a thing. And they stop eating. According to uh, <laughs> Dan, anytime we see a penguin, okay. he will tell me that. Um, I choose to believe it because penguins with ennui sound very relatable. Yeah. Um, and that is now the eel biologist. So this is just cool. We found it. We did it. How did they do it? Um, you know, normal ways. <laughs> They, a big part of it was like we have developed uh, tracking technology, like GPS tracking technology that is both uh, sturdier than before and small enough that you can put it on an eel without hurting the eel. Yeah, presumably we could have solved this mystery a lot earlier with like, you know, GPS tags. (laughs) GPS tags are like uh, notoriously hard to get to stick on a creature. Okay. So that's a big part of it is like uh you especially like with these eels um since we kind of knew at this point like if you look at all the young eels that show up in europe um you can tell that when an eel kind of leaves and like we were able to like find eels uh the ones that met up around the azores uh, had silvered mm-hmm. so they had like transitioned into their ocean state um so we knew we weren't finding silvered eels returning to europe which means that, like, okay, these Europe's are going out to fuck and then they die. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need a GPS tracker that will transmit in real time or near real time, right? Right. Because you're not going to be able to recover it. Yeah. Uh, and it has to go pretty far away. A, <laughs> right. It has to go very far away. It has to uh, be able to withstand deaths. And I'm not super sure we knew how deep the eels went. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, one of the things with those whale sharks and why we don't really know exactly where they go to have sex or we didn't for a long time is that they would go so deep into the water that the GPS trackers would stop transmitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, that is that's that's an issue that had to be overcome. Right. Uh, and it also has to be pretty small. Uh, animals that we were able to put GPS trackers on before this where we could get data transmitted back were, like, marine mammals mm-hmm. were things that were big. Um. But, you know, yeah, it life, would be hard to put uh, a tag on a baby eel. <laughs> exactly. Or like these are adult eels that are like traveling back, but they're still like it's not a it's not a big animal. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to like attach something to it that sticks out a bunch where there's going to be drag and that could like impact its ability to complete its its journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like now that we had like. Science has developed enough that we had a small enough GPS tracker that we could get actual readings from, like, pretty easily from a distance. We could follow them through satellite tracking. Um, They, the scientists, like, set out. They went to the Azores, so that the islands off the coast of Portugal. They know, like, they had known for a while now, this is where all of the eels from Europe would show up at the Azores from Europe and Iceland. Like all of them would congregate there. Um, They would meet up and then they would leave the Azores to go off, right? To go to the Sargasso somewhere. They're like, we've tracked the EO conference, but where's the after party? Exactly. Um, We know where they pregame, but we've yet to find their secret sex club. (laughs) So they grabbed 21 uh, female eels, um, Assuming, right, like, they, they're, they're the ones who are going to have to lay the eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tagged them. 
so that they could track like this kind of final leg. They like they've already like if you think about it, this is already ridiculous. Eels from all over, uh, like all over. I'm going to use the word coastal Europe, but that's like really misleading because it's like some of these eels go really far inland. Mm-hmm. Um, they have swum all the way out of their rivers, all the way out of their streams. They have made it to the coast. They have in these like coastal estuaries where like the water is brackish, is like salty, but not as salty as the ocean, not as salty as the Mediterranean. They have silvered. So <laughs> they have like undergone this, this change in form. And then they have all met at the Azores, which is like for, for some of them, the ones off the coast of Portugal, that's still a couple hundred miles. Right. For the ones from Iceland. That's far. Norway. <laughs> that's already thousands of miles. Yeah. Um, and they meet here. The scientists geotagged them and were able to like fully track their entire, entire trip. Here's a picture of some of the eels. Honestly, pretty cute. Aw. Just little... Look at them. They are kind of cute. Little, yeah, they're kind of cute. They got, like... So you can see they're, like, you know... They're good size. Not, not huge, but, yeah, they're, like... Like a double handful. <laughs> yeah, little plump eels. I love this, like, little... Science setups are fun. Anyways, I, like... It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's cool. They tagged them. They tracked a bunch of them. Of the 21, I believe only 14 made it like not like they all died but like um 15 of the eels just like their trackers stopped working at some point Mm -hmm. um so they were still able to track them for part of the journey and then at some point the like the tracker just sort of like blinked off and stopped working um but they still got you know 14 or 15 full records of the eels leaving the azores arriving in the sargasso sea and then chilling fucking breeding and laying eggs in the sargasso sea before they died mm-hmm. uh and that also means that they can now track like okay <laughs> since we know that these female adult female eels like go all the way to the sargasso sea and then they don't leave that means their larvae these like little baby tiny like proto eels they don't even look like eels yet um this is like this is like their their adolescent form. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to make they, it all the way back on their own. They make it all the way back on their own as like tiny little like like these little like flatworm looking things, oh. and then they turn into a little glass eel, which is very cute, and then like an elver, which is that like I don't know young adult eel before they just turn into like a normal eel. Um, but it takes years. Mm-hmm. Is what the, the what the other thing the researchers realized is that like by the time these these eel larvae make it all the way from the ocean back to Europe. It has been like one and a half to three years. Wow. Just just chill it on their own. It's just and for what, you know? To go be a little eel. Be a little <laughs> weird snake thing. Yeah. Well freak. Well, there you go. <laughs> and that's so that's like we know where eels fuck. And yeah. also they go through a lot of effort. That's really cool. And so we're gonna finish by talking about eel lifespan. Um, because I did, I did tell you about Alan the eel, Mm -hmm. um, pictured here dead, unfortunately. Um, eels have like, at first people did not think eels lived very long. There are many, many fish species, um, that only live for a handful of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
like there are some species a little bit larger that will live for like 15 years and that's kind of like their full lifespan and that's cool um but then there are also these weird little outliers that live for fucking ever mm-hmm. and so we knew that eels in captivity could live um 80 years on average and this is something that like scientists only found when they started putting eels into like tanks to study mm-hmm. um which imagine like putting an eel into a tank in 1920 because you're like all right i am working with this ernst Johannes schmidt guy and he's really into these eels let's just like put one in a tank and see what happens and then that eel outlives you that's wild <laughs> um it's just insulting really mm-hmm. but like go eels uh uh, and then we have, like, this case in particular, I am, like, it feels like a weird cryptid, like a really low-key cryptid. Um, in Sweden, in, like, the 18... Oh, gosh, where was it? Eel life history, European eels, the Brantovic eel in the town of Brantovic. Uh, supposedly in 1859, a kid checked an eel in a well. Mm-hmm. like we talked about to either just because it was you know, their kid and they thought it would be funny um, or to try to keep down like different larva populations. Eel went in the well. Nobody fucked with the eel. They just sort of left it there. Um, they would check on it occasionally. They would like talk about it. It would just be like the family pet, whatever. Um, that kid grows up, dies. Um, his kid has the well, has the house. There's an eel in it still. It's funny. It's dad's eel, whatever. That kid grows up, dies. His kid, the grandson of the first person, is just like, oh, okay, this is grandpa's eel. <laughs> it's been in the well for a while now. Um, but, like, now it's kind of just fun, right? Like, it's just our fun little family, like, quirk that we have this eel that's been in there since grandpa put him in there uh-huh. in 1859. <laughs> and this keeps happening. Uh-huh. Eel just, like, continues to survive in this well. Um, I think, I don't know if the, like... I don't know what the, like, family history of this property is. I don't know if, like, the owners in 2014 were the same owner, like, same family as, like, the the child uh, Samuel Nilsson mm-hmm. who put the eel in the well. Which, like, Samuel Nilsson is a kid who would put an eel in a well. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. That just sounds correct. Yeah. Um, but 155 years later... Uh, the eel dies <laughs> and then it starts getting reported on people are now like hold up wait a second how old is this eel mm-hmm. when when did you say that this kid put an eel in the well um and reportedly yeah the eel put in the well in 1959 so things everybody's reporting it as like a 155 year eel because it died in 2014 mm-hmm. um but now that we know it takes years for eel larvae to get from the Sargasso Sea to the coast of Europe. I'm thinking the eel's closer to like 160 years old at least. Yeah. And it could have been even older than that, right? Like, um, I keep, see- I keep seeing this story reported. All of the English language sources, because I don't speak Swedish, um... All of the English language sources are reporting this as like, yeah, this eel definitely was in that well from 1959 onward. I've read enough Ripley's Believe It or Not growing up (laughs) to be like, hmm, is this, has it? Yeah, was it like, Uh, oh, your Samuel, your eel died, but I mean, let's just replace it really quickly 
before he notices. He'll never notice. Oh my god. Yes. I like that so much better than just like somebody just putting an eel in a well to you know to continue the the bit. Yeah. Um every every subsequent parent is like, "Oh god, I can't let my kids really attach to this eel. He has no <laughs> friends at school. He is planning on this eel being like his one way to get girls." We got to replace it. Yeah. Um but we don't know and every like a bunch of the reports say that the eel was taken out of the well when it died and preserved so like we have the photo at the top of the the eel page apparently um some biological institute in sweden was like okay we don't buy it we're gonna neck we're gonna do a necropsy on this eel mm-hmm. we're gonna like ncis this eel um so they show up about a week after from from most of the reports about a week after the eel dies these researchers show up they've already contacted the family they're like all right give us the eel we're gonna like verify this story Mm -hmm. initially they're given the body of an eel with no head (laughs) right um scientists are like okay what the fuck like we can't do anything with this Mm -hmm. and then the family reveals it's like because i'm getting it all secondhand through translated sources i'm like i know i'm missing something but i don't have the means Mm -hmm. of like figuring it out Eventually, the scientists find out that somebody in the family cut the head off the eel and then, like, preserved it in a fridge. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's how the scientists got it, which could be good, yeah. right? Could mean that they were, like, doing it because they want the eel investigated, but also just feels like, I don't, I just, there's, like, things going on here where I'm like, I don't, I don't know, and I want to find out. So the, the scientists definitely got the eel. Both it's like headless body and the head. And the bodiless head. <laughs> and the bodiless head. Um, and they said that what they can do is like, um, I think whale bones are like this as well. There's a bunch of animals and trees that are like this where like you can find certain bones that have been there since um, birth, essentially, since hatching. Mm-hmm. That have just built up like layers Um, like tree rings so you can go through and you can like in eel bones it's like an ear bone or an ear stone is what it's called i believe Mm -hmm. um where you can count the rings on an eel's ear stone (laughs) (laughs) and you can figure out how old the eel is that way i am certain there is some amount of like carbon dating that could happen Uh but i know in your carbon dating um, biological samples you have to find a piece of tissue that has not been exposed to air. Right, yeah, it seems like it'd be hard to carbon date something that had been alive through a lot of the events that we used to carbon date things, right? That's right, and that's why we use um, teeth are very important uh, if you find human remains, mm-hmm. is because teeth, uh, the obviously like the hard enamel around a tooth is not porous as much as a bone would be. Uh, and that both means that you can find DNA inside of a tooth a little bit more easily than bones that have been completely, like, exposed to air. Mm-hmm. But you can also find pockets of air inside a tooth that are less likely to have been um, contaminated with more modern air. Mm. And in that pocket of air, that is where you will find, like, the carbon that you would use to, like, carbon date. Or what like, you can use other, um, you can, like, potassium date stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just use, like... A bunch of different uh, radioactive isotopes to 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 date things, mm-hmm. um, 
But in something like an eel where the bones are very tiny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, those are real tiny so, rodents they're counting, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, right? So, like, I know that they have it. I've seen uh, half a dozen news articles that are like, yes, this institute in Sweden definitely has this eel head. And they have told us that they have the eel head. And they are very excited to, uh, whatever, to count the rings on this eel's ear stone. Um, and then nothing. Oh, that's so disappointing. And then I got nothing. I assume they just, like, found out that it wasn't that old and didn't want to, like, crush everybody's spirit. I don't... So they just hoped to let it die. It... I don't know. Or they find out that it was that old and because so many news sources had already been reporting on it as if it were fact, it wasn't considered important to follow up. Yeah. Damn. Um, I have a couple of friends, internet friends, from Sweden. Uh, or, like, one of them is... is like literally from Sweden. Um, Swedish is his first language. The other is from the U.S., lives in Sweden. Sweden is one of her second languages. Uh, and I have asked them about the eels. Mm-hmm. I have not heard back yet. <laughs> I understand that this might not be a priority. But if I find out anything else about this eel, we will get updates because, like, I just... I want to know. I want to know. I like animals that live for way too long. Yeah. I think they're fun. <laughs> um, and that's that's what I have. That's... We got... We got went where did the crabs go and where do eels fuck yeah i just hope we don't have an article in a few years time that's like where did all the eels go we finally found out where they fucked and then we lost them all (laughs) oh my god they like track them all to the sargasso sea they all like shake off their gps trackers but we like before the last tracker stops working we see them all begin to leave the sargasso sea yeah i'm just like maybe bermuda you know, they're north of the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, that really should be investigated. That might be where the crabs went. That might be where the crabs went. We don't know. Well. We don't know. I have learned a lot today. <laughs> and we managed to uh, end on something actually lighthearted and interesting for once. Which I do appreciate. It's always interesting. Not always lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, right. This, eels are just cool. They're just, that's all we got. That's all we need to think about. Eels are neat. Um, uh, Schmidt, uh, after he found out where eels laid their eggs, he did spend, um, he died fairly young in like his 50s from uh, flu. Mm-hmm. But he did spend like a bunch of time after 1923, uh, which like <laughs> made him eel famous. Mm-hmm. Not normal people famous, but at least <laughs> eel famous. Uh, so he got a bunch of funding to just go look at eels from all over the rest of the world. And it is also very nice to just think of this, this guy from Denmark, just all around like the Pacific islands and the Indian ocean, looking at eels, just looking at eels, you know, just looking at eels. I think that's a goal we can all kind of have for ourselves. Just find an animal that you really want to just, just look at it, just look at it, you know. Maybe an animal other people don't think about too much. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Sam, thank you as always. Yeah. Thank you for teaching me more than I would ever possibly wish to know about eels. (laughs) And crabs. You know, it's kind of like the seaweed thing where I'm like, well, I was sort of interested. Now I'm just like enthusiastic. And that's nice. Yeah. I'm going to go hug an eel. Yeah. I would love to hug an eel if the eel um, consented to being hugged. Yeah, well, I mean, there is that, but... Yeah. 
We can dream. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye.